We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined today by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Nicola Smith of the UK's Telegraph. It's great to be here. Tonight, we'll be discussing Li Mingzhi meeting the press for the first time since his release from a Chinese prison. The Hacker Public Communication Foundation facing criticism for using a hit lameme to sell moji. And the central bank holding its biennial NT dollar lucky serial number auction. But we'll begin with the latest on the coronavirus situation here in Taiwan and some numbers. Now, the island is currently sitting in fourth place in the New York Times' coronavirus world map tracking the global outbreak for the past seven days. Now, according to data there, Taiwan's daily average caseload stands at 43,291 over the past week, or 182 cases per 100,000 people. That's an increase of 725% over the past 14 days. Now, the daily average number of deaths is 10, which comes in at 0.04 people per 100,000 people. And some 79% of the population is now fully vaccinated. That, according to the New York Times. Here in in Taiwan and looking at some of the latest figures from the Centers for Disease Control, a total of 570,870 coronavirus cases have been reported here since the pandemic began in early 2020. Of that number, 558,764 have been listed as domestic infections and 478,870 of those cases have been reported since the beginning of this year. Of the cases recorded so far this year, 805 have so far been classified as moderate infections and 168 as severe, while the remainder were the asymptomatic or had only mild symptoms. As of the time we're recording this show, there have been 968 coronavirus-related deaths, and the CDC says health officials have now carried out 15,940,163 coronavirus tests on 10,453,812 individuals here since the pandemic began. Now, the single-day number of cases exceeded 60,000 for the first time time on Thursday with 65,446, of which 65,385 were domestic infections. And the Central Epidemic Command Centre is now allowing certain individuals who receive a positive result from a coronavirus rapid antigen test to be counted as confirmed cases without having to undergo a PCR test. Previously, all individuals here have only been listed as a case after a positive PCR test result. And the government saying that it introduced a new policy in an attempt to alleviate overcrowding at PCR testing sites and hospital emergency rooms. The Food and Drug Administration, meanwhile, is now allowing private individuals to import up to 100 coronavirus rapid antigen tests for personal use only without first obtaining permission. And speaking to reporters earlier this week, Administration Director General Wu Shoumei said the new policy will last until the end of June and people can also import rapid tests that are not on the government's list of brands that have emergency use authorization. However, tests that do not have the emergency use authorization here in Taiwan will not be accepted by health authorities for official purposes. And one of my guests today caused heads to turn earlier this week with an article that warned that Taiwan is now facing, and I quote, the daunting prospect of a vertical trajectory of infections that could trigger unprecedented death rates by this summer. And while some medical professionals here have voiced their agreement with those observations, others disagreed with the report. So Nicola, there's your report. It turned caused heads to turn. Some not and some went nay. Well, that's always going to be the case, isn't it? I mean, we're in we're in uncharted territory at, at the moment. 
Um, and Taiwan is going through one of its toughest challenges of the pandemic today. Um, and the article was based on um, what experts uh, were telling me in interviews and also um, on what we've seen uh, in neighbouring countries, notably South Korea and Singapore, where they've also gone through um, vertical trajectories after listening uh, restrictions and they have also seen their death rates rise. Thankfully, in South Korea and Singapore, um, death rates remained low, but they were still unprecedented for those countries. And Taiwan has been living in a very secure bubble, so to speak, for the past two years, which has been a great strategy. Um, think, I definitely think that was the, the right strategy to take. It saved many lives and the economy by, by um, closing the borders for two years. But there comes a point in this pandemic now with the highly transmissible Omicron variant where um, everybody is being forced to, to change their strategies and forced to open up if they, they have been um, closed until now because, because it's just too infectious. Um, so Taiwan is facing that hurdle now. And I, I think, you know, the article pointed to some worst case scenarios um, and hopefully um, the government will be able to, to steer Taiwan through, um, uh, through this um, next challenge in the best way possible. And of course, one of the problems, Nicola, people had with the article was the fact that you used, you used numbers from South Korea and Singapore and Hong Kong. Well, you do have to have some data points um, to guide you through this. Um, and... I, you know, everyone's taken um, everyone's taken a different strategy, and I think we can all learn from each other. Um, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, Singapore—they all took the an initial, a similar initial um, approach to the pandemic by closing borders, by um, using contact tracing um, and mask wearing, um, testing. Um, to and quarantine, notably, to to control the the spread of the virus. Um, now, South Korea and Singapore took an earlier decision than Taiwan um, to change that strategy and to move to one of mitigation rather than suppression. Um, and Taiwan can learn from these countries because you know if you look at South Korea, South Korea and Singapore have handled it very well. Uh, they kept their death rates low, but the key thing to their strategy has been to get um, senior citizens highly vaccinated. And that's something that Taiwan has not quite managed to do. And I think it, you really need to take these data points and see what has happened in South Korea and Singapore as compared to Hong Kong, where seniors were, were not um, well vaccinated and they saw a, a, a really high death rate. Yeah, that's right. And so it's interesting because uh, particularly now as we move to this mitigation strategy, we're seeing cases that are over 3,000 per day. Uh, we have not reached the peak yet, but it's uh, anticipated that that might come soon. However, uh, in terms of the death toll, that will become more clear several weeks out. And so I think we're seeing this kind of delayed uh, kind of assessment of the situation now. And uh, particularly the CECC that coordinates Taiwan's COVID response 
they often will point to Hong Kong as a counterexample, pointing to the higher rates of vaccination in Taiwan compared to Hong Kong to say that this is why Taiwan will not have a scenario similar to Hong Kong. But then when one looks at Japan or Singapore, uh, that's another point of comparison in terms of that Taiwan does lag behind there in terms of vaccinating the elderly. Uh, Taiwan does have high rates of vaccination among young people. I believe that actually vaccination between 18 to 30 is around like 99.99% for uh, second dose vaccination. I'm not sure where boosters are at now currently. And so that's had some effect, but the effects on the elderly population, uh, that is the issue. And, and there is uh, has been continual delays in terms of trying to push for vaccination among the elderly. Uh, there remain people that are unwilling to get vaccinated. I mean, there's been a wave of people with the current outbreak that have gotten vaccinated, but even then there are just some demographics that are not willing to get vaccinated at all. And that is what is concerning. And Brian, why don't you think they're willing to get vaccinated? Uh, part of it's the fear of vaccines. I think Taiwan unfortunately embraced some of that with uh, regards to AstraZeneca, a fear of blood clots. Uh, there are people that really wanted a specific vaccine. Uh, but I think in generally just the discourse around vaccines, that there's a discussion of which vaccines were safe and which were not, caused some people just to feel that vaccines overall were dangerous or that while COVID was under control, that they felt no need to get vaccinated or that they thought the risks uh, outweighed the benefits there. I think uh, older people sometimes are counting on that others around them have been vaccinated. And so that does have some effect in helping, but is also it is concerning regarding if COVID begins spreading unchecked among elderly populations. And so now we're at this phase in which uh, I think it's a quite critical point. Uh, I think there's a major shift between this year and last year, for example, in terms of the fact that there is not as much hospitalizations. Uh, mild and asymptomatic cases can quarantine at home. And so the hospital system is not overwhelmed the way that it was in Hong Kong, for example, in which they really did try to uh, just they put everyone in the hospital and that overwhelmed the system. Uh, but the uh, concern now is that still that this could stress Taiwan's uh, medical capacity, that there are demographics that are not covered by vaccination and that they could be what uh, they could face risks now at present. And Nicola, what about possibly hidden cases? Do you think Taiwan has lots of hidden cases or do you think compared with other countries, hidden cases are minimal? Um, well, it's, it's really hard to know if they're hidden, but um, Taiwan is certainly not doing uh, as much testing as, say, a country like South Korea has been doing. And and that is uh, that is an issue. Um, you know, you, you do see on social media a lot of people asking about tests. How do I obtain tests? How do I get a PCR test? How do I get a rapid um, a rapid home test kit? Um, and I think that's something that Taiwan should have thought through more um, before it, it, it opened up. And that, yes, there probably are um, a lot of hidden cases out there if you don't have the testing capacity. Um, this was a key part of South Korea's strategy um, from the beginning. They've always embraced mass testing, which Taiwan hasn't, which um, in the initial phases of the pandemic was OK because there weren't really any cases. You know, there weren't really any cases around. The borders were closed. Um, it was clear that hospitals were not overwhelmed. Um, but, you know, in South Korea, they really used this as they opened up to detect the most serious cases that needed um, early intervention and the cases that could then, you know, be left at home to, to just recover. Um, and this is also the case in Singapore. So, so testing is really important in this kind of next phase of the pandemic. And I, I think, you know, like Taiwan is, is starting to, um, to get that uh, sorted again we're just going through some teething troubles at the moment and, and that, that will um, actually um, eventually be sorted out. But, 
but you really need to be able to track the virus and where it's going. Um, and we saw in South Korea that it went up to 600,000 cases a day. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a bigger population there, but it's very, very important to know um, how widespread the outbreak is. And of course, staying with quarantine periods, the China Times on Thursday of this week focused on former Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices official Li Bingying, who has a close association with the DPP and the Tsai administration. And he warned that the domestic coronavirus outbreak peak is still a ways away. And he said the government should consider rolling back its three plus four home quarantine policy to ten plus seven due to the fast rising daily caseload. Brian, what do you think of Dr. Li's comments there? Yes, I think there's uh, some debate regarding quarantine policy, and this is something that's politically contested between the pan-green and pan-blue camps as well in some cases. Uh, because of the fact now that there are so many cases and so many contacts and, and so forth, uh, this has required shifting the definition for contacts or uh, adjusting the quarantine period uh, for, for contacts or uh, cases themselves, actually. And so that's the question going forward in terms of the policy management, because now cases are rising to such an extent, as well as the number of contacts, that you can't quarantine such vast segments of society. That could start to have impacts. Uh, I think people also are unwilling to go through that because of a disruption to their lives, and that might lead to issues with compliance. And I think that's the issue going forward. I mean, it's interesting that there's not a kind of clear narrative, let's say, between the pan blue and the pan green camps in which, let's say, the pan blue camps is calling for stronger uh, quarantine measures or looser quarantine measures. It seems like it's a little disparate between politicians. And as in this case with the uh, kind of uh, among the pan green camp, there's also some debate regarding that. But I think that this is a, a way in which I think now the COVID policy of the time administration is, is debated and questioned by the public. And Nicola, disparities between comments about quarantine periods there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the dangers now is Taiwan faces this huge challenge is that, that the, the pandemic becomes more politicised, whereas previously you saw a lot more unity um, between parties and they weren't taking pot shots at each other. Um, and that danger increases as the, the local elections approach as well. And I, I think really, um, instead of debating um, lengths of quarantine, the focus should be much more on this final, and I keep repeating this, but this, this final 20% of seniors who haven't been vaccinated. I mean, that's, that's a huge proportion of vulnerable people who have not been vaccinated. Um, and, you know, from what we've from the information that we've had from the health ministry, the vast number of cases among the younger population are um, asymptomatic or mild. So really, rather than kind of debating the nitty gritty of quarantine, um, I think there should be much more focus on how do we get these old people vaccinated? How do we encourage them to do that? And, and one of the, the comments that was raised by um, Professor um, Chan from uh, NTUH in my article was that you have to encourage seniors either by helping them at home to get vaccinated or by restricting their access to large gatherings. Previously, uh, a few months ago, there were restrictions on young people going out. You had to have um, a COVID vaccine passed against certain venues, but there weren't similar restrictions on old people who are the ones who really need to get the vaccine. And I know that there has been criticism of comparisons with South Korea and Singapore, but if you look at their data, over 90% of, of their most vulnerable population were vaccinated. And yet they still saw um, higher deaths among that group of people, largely among the unvaccinated who remained. And also um, they, 
South Korea still struggled um, for a period with older people dying. And so this is just the reality. And people might think it's controversial, but this the Omicron variant is mild if you're vaccinated largely, but it can still be deadly if you're not. Um, and I, I think Taiwan has um, existed for, for so long in this safe space that I think there isn't sometimes... Um, people don't quite realise what's been happening in the rest of the world. And Brian, I mean, apart from press ganging poor old people and grabbing them and taking them to a clinic to get a needle in their arm, <laughs> what can the government do? So part of it has been uh, uh, providing cash rewards of 500 NT to the elderly if they go to get vaccinated. Um, so possibly if you do increase that amount, that might encourage old people to get vaccinated. Um, at the same time, it is a challenge. I think that particularly there is this uh, belief in conspiracy theories about, about uh, vaccines among some demographics. And so it is actually just very hard persuading people that way. And so I think part of it also is uh, a government campaign of persuasion or, or trying to combat uh, misinformation or disinformation about vaccines among the elderly. I think that that might be another uh, thing the government could focus on present or perhaps even uh, trying to convince family members around these people. Uh, for example, a campaign targeting family members to convince their elderly relatives to get vaccinated. That might also particularly prove effective. And so I think that there needs to be more creativity there when it comes to outreach to this demographic, which unfortunately the vaccination rate doesn't seem to be rising and doesn't have it seem to have for some time. And Nicola, if you had five minutes with a health minister, what, how would you recommend that he persuade more elderly people to get vaccinated? Um, I mean, I, I think what um, Professor um, Chan uh, said was was a good idea that you have to have a, a kind of carrot and stick approach. I mean, um, like was imposed on young people earlier, you know, not having your vaccine pass, you couldn't go to certain places. I remember going into a bar and being asked for uh, my vaccine, my vaccine certificate or proof of vaccination. And I think that should be applied more to places where old people hang out. Um, but also at the same time, there are there are people who are probably afraid. Um, they're probably afraid to leave their homes. Um, they uh, they might not know how to get the vaccine. They're not very. They might not be tech savvy, um, and they might just need assistance. And I know that has been happening, but I I would definitely step step that up. Um, just home visits for for elderly to help them get vaccinated, and and also I I think it's going to take, as Brian said, it's going to take a lot of time and effort to really undo a lot of the disinformation that's that's been out there. And I, I do actually think that the media has a role to play in that because um, last year there, there was a lot of disinformation out there surrounding the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I think that that definitely made people afraid. Um, and, you know, I do I do believe that the media has a, a very important role to play now in putting out the message about how important it is to get vaccinated. And Brian, I mean, do you think there's possibly a stigma here in Taiwan because, of course, the past governments here about demanding papers from old people when they go to some places? I think that's part of it. Um, but I think in general, it's uh, much easier to get young people to take carry on these measures. I mean, part of it's this reliance on smartphones, for example. Uh, the CCC is currently promoting its social distancing app in lieu of the uh, to replace the QR code registration system. But for example, older people may be using older phones in which this is not possible to download or it's uh, the, the OS is out of date. 
Um, I think in terms of vaccination passes, this is also quite similar that it might just, uh, for some older people, it might be too complicated actually to obtain this uh, kind of digital proof of vaccination or even to use the National Health Insurance app in order to pull this up. And so there's part of it. Um, but I think that particularly then older venues that older people go to, I mean, there are, for example, community centers, you could require vaccination passes for that. Uh, I think also older people gather in parks that might be much harder to enforce. Uh, but then, for example, let's say traditional markets. I mean, that's another place in which older people do go to. And, and during earlier stages of the pandemic, there was the checking of IDs, for example, regarding what the uh, ID number was, if it's an even number, if it's an odd number in terms of dividing up uh, which days that you could go to the traditional market. And in that way, trying to hope to uh, try to stagger the uh, amount of crowds or to kind of disperse the amount of crowds that would be going there. And those are potential options to think of. And these are examples drawn from earlier on in Taiwan's pandemic management strategy. So there's a precedent for that. But I think uh, I've not seen that yet currently. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And pro-democracy activist Li Mingzhe met the press earlier this week here in Taipei for the first time since his return to the island after being released from a Chinese prison following completion of his five-year sentence for subversion of state power. Li returned to Taiwan on April the 15th, and at the time it was reported that he will be holding a press conference with his wife after completing his quarantine period. And this Tuesday at 10 a.m., he did just that. Now, Li described his arrest by Chinese authorities on the Macau-China border as an abduction and said police tried to coerce a false confession from him for spying for the DPP. He said he resisted those attempts as he knew it would implicate the government here in Taiwan at a time of strained cross-strait relations. Now, according to Li, Chinese authorities then pursued what he termed an illegal prosecution against him based on accusations that he used online discussion groups to disseminate information and articles advocating for the overthrow of the Chinese government. And speaking about why he travelled to China, Li said he had been there previously from time to time to meet with human rights advocates or to visit political prisoners and he never believed that his human rights advocacy on China would constitute subversion of state power. Lee also denied having received any funding from the government or the DPP prior to travelling to China and stressed that he used his own money to promote human rights and help people in China on humanitarian grounds. Now, Lee wrapped up the press conference by urging other Taiwanese who may be considering going to China to do activities related to human rights to remember his case and he added that he and his wife now wish to return to their quiet and normal life and will stay out of the limelight. So, Brian, that was Li Mingzhe's first press conference. I mean, do you think he'll stay out of the limelight or do you think he'll go on and have more press conferences and possibly get a, a, get a, a job or a, some association with a, a democracy foundation here? It's a good question because he was previously involved in democracy work. But I think that uh, the Li family might try to keep out of the limelight for now, um, at the very least. Uh, the Lee family, some of their internal tension did actually spill out into the public uh, during the course of this. For example, Lee's mother called on her son to apologize to the Chinese state and threw out his books that are political and clashed with his wife, Lee Tingyu, who is advocating for his release. And so I think there might be some internal tensions there for the Lee family to sort out. So that they might take some time regarding that. Uh, but then in terms of that, I mean, Lee, his attention raises a lot of concerns then for Taiwanese civil society groups in the past. There is much more close contact, for example, between Taiwanese civil society groups and Chinese civil society groups. But particularly uh, after the rise of Xi Jinping and then after, for example, the Hong Kong protests, uh, the ability to conduct these relations or ties is, is, is decreased because this will be framed as something that 
is subversion of state or the Taiwanese government fomenting rebellion against a, a quote-unquote color revolution against the Chinese government. And so I think for someone like Li, he might have thought that he was low profile enough that this would not lead to his being targeted, but this still happened nonetheless. Do you think possibly that was a bit naive of him, Nicola? I, I wouldn't say naive. I think his case was definitely a wake-up call um, for um, a lot of people, including the NGO community, um, about how um, how they could be targeted by China, you know, for for things that normally in a in a democratic society would not be subversive at all. Um, and he he made that point as well. And I, I think it was a sign of things to come. Um, and that his case really highlighted the dangers for people. Um, who oppose the, the Communist Party's, the Chinese Communist Party's views um, in going to Chinese territory. Um, so, you know, his case was was unprecedented among NGO workers at the time. So I, I wouldn't say that was naive. Um, I would just say that it was a sign of, of China's um, a hardening crackdown on, um, on freedom of expression and... Um, on, on basic human rights. Um, and it was certainly um, his case uh, brought it to the wider world as well, um, you know, what China's intentions were and, and the, tra- the trajectory that the Chinese Communist Party was on. And, and then, you know, a couple of years later, we saw what happened in Hong Kong and this, this huge crackdown on, on any kind of dissent or freedom of expression or opposition to the, the Chinese Communist Party. And, and you know, what, what his wife did, um, she, she really um, highlighted his case internationally. And I think that was very important. I mean, it came at great cost to, to her and her husband. Um, but, you know, she was initially when I spoke to her in 2017 and she she said then that she she'd been told to to keep quiet and to try and, you know, allow people to quietly negotiate his release. And there was no guarantee that that was going to happen. But that was not the that was not the course that she wanted to take. And, and she chose to, to make it much more um, high profile. I remember her protesting um, publicly that, you know, he didn't have his medication and that kind of really um, brought the, the uh, that, that generated a lot of media attention. Um, and, you know, as the case progressed, um, she took it to the, the US, she, she traveled to the US, she traveled to the European Union to um, to take it to the to the European Parliament. Um, and I, I think what she did, and you know, her husband obviously as well, who's in, in prison, was that their case really kind of um, showed the international community um, the the what could happen, um, the 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 dangers, the, the dangerous path that, that China was taking um, in terms of, of trying to suppress any kind of dissent at all. And Brian, what about his comments about the, the police in China trying to coerce a false confession from him for spying for the DPP government? So I think this is a particularly concerning claim because China does want to ger- generate this narrative now of Taiwanese spying in China or Taiwan, uh, again, like I mentioned, trying to create color revolutions, quote unquote, against China. And so, for example, uh, during the time of the Hong Kong protests, there was all these news about Taiwanese are detained in China. I mean, there there's more than just Li. And China's narrative then was that these were Taiwanese spies. Around the time of the 2019 protests, for example, the Chinese government claimed to have arrested over 100 Taiwanese spies. I mean, this is pretty, I think, absurd. Um, if there was actually that much amount of people detained in China, news of this would have broke much earlier. But the Chinese government 
wants to create this this frame now in order to attack Taiwan and, and claim Taiwan is working with these dark forces or with the U.S. to try to really target China. And so I think play targeting activists, but also people that have links with the DPP. Uh, this could be something that we see going forward. Uh, they might try to target, for example, individuals that are politicians, uh, not politicians, people that are family members of politicians, uh, however distant. Uh, there are people that do business in China. And so that does include, for example, relatives of pan-green politicians. And so that, that might become a, a avenue for trying to target Taiwan or really intimidate Taiwan going forward. And so I think this, this kind of narrative will be growing in the future. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I, I think it, you know, it, it shows how willing China is to disregard any kind of international human rights law standards, um, and you know, just just do its own thing and just punish who it wants to punish. And I, I, I do think that um, it teaches us that that we have to be more cautious. That people have to realise that you know, the worst case scenario could happen. Um, if they are opposed to the, the Chinese Communist Party and, and they do happen to to um, you know be in a vulnerable position. And moving on now, the Hacker Public Communication Foundation this week found itself in the spotlight for a promotional video for Mochi, the traditional hacker snack made of glutinous rice. And it was quick to criticise criticism of its use from a 2004 German language movie called Downfall, a meme which covered the final days of Adolf Hitler to promote the hacker cuisine. Now, the government-funded foundation has described criticism of the video as being discriminatory, arguing that some the same scene, rather, had been used in memes in many other languages. Now, the statement came after Hacker News posted the meme video, which depicts Hitler rebuking his officers in the bunker when they tried to tell him the war is over and the war is over bit was replaced by him bawling them out for failing to purchase him any mochi. Now, Taiwan People's Party lawmaker Lai Shangling said the use of the video was an act of disregard for the tragic history of the Holocaust. And the lawmaker went on to accuse Hacker News of transgressing taboos about racism simply to tempt Internet users into getting clicks. Now, the Hacker Foundation was quick to deny those charges, saying that the meme had been widely circulated on the internet for more than a decade in many languages, and it's regrettable that hacker people did not enjoy the same rights as other ethnic groups in terms of creating videos. The foundation also stressed that it gave careful consideration as to whether it should use the clip or not, as it didn't want to be seen as the glorification of Nazism or the denigration of hacker cuisine. So, Nicola, Hitler comes into play in something in Taiwan again. It does, but I think there's a, there's a different context here. It's um, it's not kind of school kids being encouraged to dress up as Nazis, which was a previous case. But it, it, you know, this is a, a well-known meme. Um, it has been used extensively over the past decade, as, as you've said, um, and you know, people adapt it all the time. Um, so I, I do think that um, you know, any time. Um, any time Hitler or uh, comes into play, then I, I I do think that you you have to be prepared for pushback. I mean, not everyone is going to um, agree with this. It's, some people are going to be sensitive uh, towards this particular meme, and, and I think if you choose to do that, you have to be um, very aware um, that you may get. Um, some criticism from for doing it, um, and I don't think that's uh, necessarily targeted specifically at you know hacker culture. Um, in twenty twenty, um, there was a case uh, where a BP worker in Australia was sacked for using the same meme, 
um, and he used it to as a way of um, uh, expressing humour over party wage uh, over wage negotiations. Um, and he actually um, went to court over it, and and he won an unfair dismissal case um, and went back to work. So this this kind of meme. Uh, it is it's part of popular culture all over the world now. Um, you see it everywhere, and 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 yet there still is a risk of of offence. Um, so you have to calculate that if you're going to use it. Yeah, that's right. And so it's uh, interesting watching Leiden trying to attack uh, Hawk Television regarding this. I think part of it is really an attack attempt to attack the side administration overall because Lai is the politician of the Pan Blue Camp, and so grabbing onto this attack is is something you know that seems natural. Uh, however, I think in this case, it's just trying to grab onto something to attack. I mean, I found Hakka television response is a little bizarre to alleging that, well, there's mean discrimination against Hakka people, that Hakka people can't use memes and that's what this is about. Uh, but then I also kind of wonder, like, when Lai is attacking over this issue, what is the target audience? Uh, the Pan Blue Camp has struggled to, for example, win younger voters. And so going after meme in this regard just makes the party seem a little old fashioned and out of touch with contemporary uh, just communication in terms of how young people oftentimes discuss issues or, or just circulate memes that are humorous among themselves or how there are all these pop culture references floating around. And so I'm not sure this necessarily helps the Pan Blue Camp uh, win young support, even if the Taiwan People's Party is not the KMT and there is uh, it's milder in terms of a lot of these uh, kind of issues compared to the KMT in terms of how it's received. Do the Hacker Foundation, Brian, should have come out and said, it's funny and just left it there? Uh, yeah, I think that might have been the best move to do instead of just being like, well, this is discrimination. Uh, I think that that maybe also is a, a bit far in the other direction. I just think sometimes things can be lost in translation and, and humour doesn't always translate as well. Um, you know, this meme has been used uh, all over the world, for example, to, um, you know, other examples include the popularity of Pokemon Go or the Trump or um, I saw one where it's Christians sending solar powered Bibles oh. to Haiti and this, this meme was used. Um, so I, I think it doesn't necessarily translate across every nation and culture. Um, and yeah, it, it seems to have blown up out of proportion here. And before we go this week, the central bank announced that it will be holding its biennial auction of new Taiwan dollar bills with special serial numbers later this month. The auction has been taking place since 2012. Now, according to the bank, lucky serial number NT dollar bills. Basically, well, the, the, the money that they auctioned off for has totaled 89.88 million NT in total since it held its first auction. And of that total, 66 million NT has been put into the National Treasury. Now, the upcoming auction will be taking place between May the 19th and 24th. And the central bank says it will be offering some 4,592 lucky bills for sale in 100, 500 and 1,000 NT denominations. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about when I say lucky bills, bills. Well, bills here in Taiwan that bell serial numbers that sound similar to auspicious phrases in Mandarin are highly prized. Bills bearing the serial numbers 6666688888818618168 and 168888 are considered some of the hot ticket items for which some people are willing to pay well over 100 times their face value for. So Brian, I mean, will you be rushing out and buying your lucky bills at the end of this month? Probably not. I don't think I have the funds for that. But I think it's uh, kind of funny that this takes place. There's a trend of this, for example, with regards to license plates as well for cars, uh, that people really want the ones with lucky numbers. Uh, there are other other various uh, items that are 
auctioned because they're viewed as suspicious. For example, the first fish catch of a season. It like goes for much higher than the market value. It's auctioned, uh, etc. And so this is a, another example of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, spending money to buy money. I think uh, it's quite interesting. Yeah, I, well, first of all, I'm not very superstitious. Um, but secondly, um, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't see the logic in spending more money for less money. So no, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to rush out and buy one of those bills. But I mean, Brian, people, of course, they frame them and put them on their walls and things. That's true. That's true. And so it is kind of like buying artwork in that sense. I mean, this is a way at least for the government to raise some funds that could be perhaps good put to uh, uh, more use. Um, but it's, it's interesting that there's this uh, attention then to which bills come up and which have auspicious numbers being produced uh, and so forth. Really, they could NFT them. True. That's another, uh, well, I mean, apart from the, the effect on the environment that NFTs have, I, I imagine that'd be actually quite lucrative. And of course, 66 million NT into the treasury, Nicola. This, the sale of this money has created over the last 10 years, basically. Sure. I mean, you know, it, it works for some people. It clearly works for the government. Um, it, I'm sure it makes many people happy to have these bills. So why not? I mean, you know, win-win for everyone. And if you found in your wallet you had one of these lucky bills, would you spend it or would you be auctioning it off? I think I'd probably just spend it, to be honest. <laughs> and Brian, I mean, would you, if you found one in your wallet, would you auction it off or would you simply spend it? I wonder how much I would go for actually online. I mean, I was looking at uh, this video about strangely shaped chicken nuggets for sale on eBay the other day. And so I wonder if it might just be like that, you know, with some numbers or if it's just, uh, I, I, I don't know, maybe if it's only being auctioned through the government, then people pay attention. But I, I think in other contexts, people will just be like, what, what is this? Like they're, they're trying to sell money online. And I think that maybe actually, I don't know the specifics, but it could be illegal if you're trying to sell money and you're not the government. I don't know. And of course, Brian, this goes down to lucky numbers. Of course, we've got an election coming up. And of course, the candidates will be hoping for lucky numbers there as well. That's true. Yeah, it's another part of uh, electioning in uh, Taiwan that people are hoping for the good numbers and they come up with slogans based on their numbers. And so I think uh, people do pay attention to that. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And Brian Hugh. Good night. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on your favorite podcast app. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.